This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabule. And I'm Ben Brophy. So we're going to talk today mostly about police violence, about police brutality, and the Christian's response to it, and the church's response to it. And I want to note that this is um, an episode we could have run any time in the last you know, few years that we've been doing this podcast, as it happens, as we're recording it right now, uh, we are in the middle still of a pandemic um, with sort of partial shutdowns and lockdowns in most parts of the country. Uh, and we're also in the middle of um, protests about police violence, um, some of which are turning violent themselves. So I'm going to take a minute or two to kind of recount some of the ways in which we got here and then just um, get into the discussion because it's a really, really important topic and one that's been, I think, weighing on all of our hearts for a little while. Because um, I could say over the last, say, 10 years or so, it's been going on a lot longer than that, but for the last 10 years or so, we've seen more and more of these cases sort of come into prominence in the news. There are lots and lots of names um, of African-American victims of police violence or something like police violence. You think about Michael Brown, you think about Tamir Rice, you think about Sandra Bland. Um, and this year, in recent months, there have been three that have become really high profile in one way or another. Um, you had Ahmaud Arbery, you had Breonna Taylor, uh, and now most recently, George Floyd. Um, without getting into the exact details of each one, I think there are a couple of themes that you see whenever one of these cases comes to light. Um, one is that the evidence is captured in some way in video, which is how we're forced to pay attention to it. Number two is that in, the, in all these cases, the victim dies. The victim um, you know, uh, does not live past the encounter. Um, the third thing that happens is that there's this conflict created because the police person involved or the police equivalent person involved um, you know, sort of used lethal force and says they did it because they had a, a fear that the person they were encountering was going to threaten them, and so they feared for their own lives. Um, a fourth theme would be that um, in most cases, arrests of the person who actually killed the victim either never happened or happened only slowly and after kind of some public outrage. And then the fifth theme, um, which I think is almost universally true, if not universally true, is that none of the killers have suffered a legal consequence. None of them are in jail. Um, and certainly none of them have been sort of convicted of murder or, you know, something like a capital crime. Um, there's, there's, so, one, there's one exception, because I just looked at this. It's Walter Scott. Yeah. Um, he went to jail for 20 years, and he went to jail for violating his constitutional rights. Uh, he, pl he pled, uh, and the judge, under his, his or her discretion, gave him as many years as he possibly could. So he got 20 years. Um, Who was that? Was, 
Walter Scott was the victim. I don't remember the police officer. The police officer got, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was so, the okay. yeah, yeah. With one exception, with one exception, right? Most of these folks are um, are not suffering any sort of legal consequence. And so again, this has been going on for a long, long time. It's come, it's become part of our public consciousness in the last 10 years. Um, and um, it's in the very, very current moment, in the current moment that we're in, um, what we see is protests in, by the last count, over 140 cities, um, violence in many of them, um, and questions about where we go from here and what the meaning of these protests are. So that's the context in which we find ourselves. And so what I thought I would do is I might actually start by asking um, the BD, as we think about the question of you know, sort of police violence and even just the idea of what police are there to do, um, how should we, you know, what does the Bible have to tell us about the kind of state's exercise of that authority? Maybe we should just sort of start there and work our way back toward this topic. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think when most Christians begin a conversation about the state and the relationship between the state and the citizenry, they go really quickly to Romans 13, uh, which is a text that um, in many respects defines the citizens' re responsibilities to the state. Now, when you go to that text and you, you only sort of think about that text, you're actually constructing the relationship in a one-sided way. You, you're constructing the relationship in such a way that you, you have all these obligations from citizens uh, to submit to governing authorities, uh, knowing that they're established by God. Um, but you, you don't sort of go, okay, now how do we flip that? What, what's the, the, the government's responsibility to citizens? I would say that when you flip the question that way, then other texts come into view, not only Romans 13, but other texts as well. So Romans 13, um, it makes it really clear that government authority is to be used to reward those who do righteous uh, and to punish those who do wrong. That's the sort of basic function of government uh, in response to its citizenry, according to Romans 13. And you see similar things, you know, running throughout the scriptures. So my mind went to um, Psalm 82. It's an interesting place to see government authority there, but this is what um, is written in Psalm 82, verses 1 to 4. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so what you see here is a, is a responsibility for Israel as a theocratic kingdom. And I would argue um, this could be appropriately applied to uh, secular government as well, to, to reflect the justice of God in its administration of, of affairs with the people. Uh, and specifically, what, what's pointing out here is there should be no partiality, right? So in, in American colloquialism, justice in that sense should be blind, should be impartial. Um, but more than that, there, there is then followed immediately a kind of preference, right? Um, that the folks who are most vulnerable to injustice should actually receive specific attention and protection, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, this, this, this right away poses a challenge to, to many Bible-believing conservative 
theologically conservative, politically uh, Christians, because um, these are precisely the kinds of things that they're often arguing against in terms of the role of government. Um, to, to not be involved uh, in this way, in the protection of the weak, the destitute, the reduction of programs, the reduction of the size of government, things of that sort, all of which are, are, are things that, that are worth talking about and have merits in various ways. I'm just simply pointing out here that, that when the scripture talks about the responsibility of government toward its citizens, um, it, actually, it actually underlines um, responsibilities that protect against or ought to um, situations like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so many others, and would call the government not to protect the powerful, uh, in this case, state actors, um, but rather to protect the destitute, to protect the weak and the vulnerable uh, and the voiceless. And, and that's what I think, for example, makes um, this week Justin, Justin Amash um, announced that he was going to introduce a bill to uh, overturn qualified immunity. And qualified immunity, uh, 1967 Supreme Court um, decision that basically makes it very difficult um, to sue and receive um, damages or whatnot, um, police officers. And, and so, the, you know, the turning back of that kind of policy, uh, not really in the Constitution, um, and enabling citizens to hold its government officials and state actors like police officers accountable, um, seems to me to be in the spirit of a text like Psalm 82, where we define the, res the responsibility of government toward its citizens, not just the citizens towards government. Well, we see that set of responsibilities, and we're going to talk more about public policy solutions um, uh, in, in a moment, because I think that's really, really important. But this idea of actually one argument that gets made often, right, is that, that those in law enforcement have to be able to use lethal force, or they have to do so if they think a situation is about to get out of hand. And the argument would go, if you, you don't want cops second guessing themselves, essentially, right? Like, so if you feel like, like, and, and knowing that you could be held liable easily uh, means you're going to do that, which might mean that public order breaks down. What do we, what do we think of that argument? From, from a, a, little, a biblical perspective or? Well, you, uh, either way, actually, right? Yeah. Like in terms of like, there, it is more of a public policy argument, if I'm being, I, I think, right? Like, but yeah. Well, from a biblical perspective, I, I would say two things. I, I, I would say, again, if you're thinking Romans 13, for example, we, we have to affirm that God gives a sword to the state, right? That mm. the state has the, the responsibility of, of exercising the sword, um, which could include lethal force. Um, so I, I think that's within the, res within the right of uh, police officers and, and state authorities. But then again, you have to come behind that and add the rest of the Bible to it, right? Um, so from the Ten Commandments to um, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 6 and so on, um, God is really quite clear that the shedding of innocent blood is a heinous sin. Um, and so we do not understand that giving the sword to the state means the state can kill unilaterally with, with, with impunity. Um, that's not at all what the Bible teaches, right? That, that use of the sword ought to be safeguarding life uh, and taking life only in, in sort of necessary circumstances. Um, and when you come to the public policy part of this, I, I think what many people are saying is necessary circumstances, the bar for that is so low um, and any determination of that so inconsistent 
if, if existent at all, that we need serious reform here. Um, but we have to affirm both of those things, that the state has the right to use the sword, which would include lethal force, but the, the entire sort of canon of scripture is saying that we should be protecting life, not, not um, taking it uh, unjustly and um, not taking it um, illegitimately or, or, or unnecessarily. Well, and, and a misuse of that power should be punished too. That's right. Uh, you're not exercising it legitimately when you do that. Yeah. Right. Well, and there's a sense in which when you misuse that power, it's, it's a perversion of justice that is mm. more offensive because mm. you are, you're basically corrupting kind of the grounding of that authority across the board. Um, and so there's a sense in which you are not just taking life, but you are perverting what God calls just and right. Um, so there's a, there's a mm. more grievous offense there, I think. That's a really good point. It's a really good point. So let's take let's take a moment then. And so, so we say that the Bible gives those instructions for how the state should kind of exercise its authority and its and the sword that's been given to it. And that sword definitely probably plays out in most of our lives most prominently in the form of police officers, right? Like more than anything else, uh, you think about sort of those who use force uh, to keep public order. Um, I think the next question. Um, is there is sometimes a debate as to how big a problem this really is. So the debate goes, you know, the claims of groups like, say, Black Lives Matter, you know, law enforcement are, you know, I think um, that there is a systemic racial bias in many or if not most police forces and that that is disproportionately targeting and in many cases killing uh, people of color and African Americans, they would say, that's overblown. That's not what happens. There are a few bad examples, but you're just reasoning from a unlimited data set. What do we What do we think about how big a problem do we think this is in America today, and why do we think um, that the problem is that big or not that big? Well, on the one hand, any is is too many, right? Like it almost doesn't matter whether it's big or big or yep. small. We as Christians should so value the Imago Day that if there is 10 a year like that's still unacceptable and it's still a perversion of what god would call right and just um on the other hand uh the data which i don't have at the top of my head but i'm sure that one of you does does every time i look at it african americans are you know five to ten times more likely to be incarcerated much more likely to be killed by police yada 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 on down the list um so if you just look at the numbers, it's clear that there is a problem here. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like the people who say it's not that big of a problem, um, A, haven't taken the time to really do, to look. And I think B, I think what they want to say, which is maybe more generous on, to them, is they want to make the point that not all cops are bad. Uh, maybe assuming the best and i want to affirm that um i i my sense is that the majority of cops aren't evil men who want to take away innocent life um so you know i understand that point but it's it is it is not good to turn a blind eye to injustice because you feel some kind of pressure to defend you know 
the rest of people who are acting appropriately. And that's my, yeah, that's my short thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, ben, I think that's helpful. And, and Nick, I think you, you ask an interesting question and I, I think it's one that uh, has to admit several answers. And, um, and, and we have to sort of begin with the question of a level of analysis. What, what do people mean when they say the problem? How big is the problem? What are they referring to specifically? There's a narrow way to sort of define the problem, and that is the number of incidents in which um, black men and women are killed by police officers. Um, but that's really a, a quite narrow, uh, that's happening in a larger context. So if we go back, for example, to really what for many people is the incident that touches off the last five, six years of, of, of struggle and protest, the, the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson. Uh, the second DOJ report there in Ferguson um, really conclusively showed that, that the part of the problem um, are specific sort of policy decisions and practices in the Ferguson, Ferguson Police Department, and they're not the only one, that, that target African-Americans um, for arrests and that targeted African-Americans for fines um, in an incredibly racist and disproportionate way uh, to, fund, to fill the coffers of, of the city. Um, now, that's part of the problem, right? Because that, that creates the immediate context of antagonism uh, between black residents and, and LEOs. Um, and it's in law that- Law enforcement context. officials, right, Thabini? Law enforcement, yeah, officials. And it's in that context that a lot of the interactions, um, stressful, dangerous, tense interactions between uh, law enforcement officers and um, black residents is occurring. So there's a narrative there. There's a, there's a context there that is a part of the problem. So if you're merely looking at the number of incidents um, and concluding from the, the sort of absolute numbers, the raw numbers, well, this is big or this is small, you, you're actually not thinking about the, the sort of problem as it exists. And we, and we can zoom out even larger, Nick. I mean, um, part of the, the origin of policing in the country is the deputization of people in the country to patrol and to capture and to re-enslave uh, African-Americans. So we're just gonna go way back, right? Uh, that, that relationship, that adversarial relationship um, built on the control of black bodies, um, built on the fear and suspicion of black persons. Um, I don't know that there's ever been a movement to sort of excavate, examine, uh, and and toss out, you know, those kind of cultural underpinnings. So that today still black communities are policed and white communities are served or, or protected. Um, and so that, you know, a little thing to, to serve and protect, um, well, that turns out to be sort of divided along racial lines. We'll serve white communities and protect white communities, but we're gonna police um, and, and punish black communities. And so how one construes the problem uh, is really important. Having said that, I absolutely agree with with Ben. Uh, we've got to have the sense that anyone killed like George Floyd, uh, anyone killed like Breonna Taylor sleeping in her home, um, anyone killed like uh, a Tatiana Jefferson playing Xbox with her um, nephew or something uh, in her own home. Uh, these we got to be zero tolerant about that. Uh, we, we've got to say any incident like that. Is, is one incident too many. It's one incident too many. So T, you, you sparked a memory in me. Um, a friend of mine in law enforcement uh, 
gave some questions to ask about that. He basically, his point was, it's more than just about individual cops and individuals that are arresting. And he, he kind of gave a couple of questions to ask about kind of this broader construct. And I think they're helpful. So I'll just throw a few of them out there. Um, but he says, you know, why does your city council legislate certain acts in certain circumstances? What offenses have they deemed must arrest in which they, which have they, they have agreed involve civil penalties instead of criminal penalties? What revenue is generated by enforcement and citations? Who passed those laws? Who decided on the fine? Who set the court costs? Who are the chiefs of police deploying? Where are the chiefs of police deploying their officers? What kinds of annual or quarterly evaluations do management of the police departments make? Is it quantitative or qualitative? How many citations and arrests do they tell officers they have to make each year to get a good evaluation? What role does that evaluation play in getting raises, promotions, or transfer to specialized positions? How many people has this forced a criminal record onto in a 10-minute conversation with the Warren check and a fist bump to fix it? You know, you can go on and on. Does your district attorney, head prosecutor, rely on conviction acquittal ratio when it comes to giving prosecutors assignments? Is this the best way to assess the ability of a trial attorney in light of newly adopted progressive policy on bail reform? On and on and on and on. There is a system here that has kind of incentivized these interactions again and again and again. And you're just asking for bad things to happen when you've incentivized arrests and interactions with people and you create this distrust on both sides that can lead to really, really awful things. So it's not just that we have a racist cop, though we do have that. I think clear, I think here with George Floyd, that's that seems obvious. But it's also more than that. Why are racist cops getting thrown into intense conflicts with African Americans on a continual basis again and again and again? Is because the system has incentivized that often at the city and even state level. So I think those questions are helpful. And it's it's boring. Like this kind of policy stuff is like you gotta sit through it. Like you gotta ask these questions and then you've got to go hold your elected officials responsible. The one silver lining here is a lot of this policy is set at the city level. Like and you have more of a voice there. And so you can really be that one annoying constituent at your ANC meeting or otherwise and being like, hey, how do we evaluate this? And just and that can that can make a real difference. So on the one hand, it's depressing because it's a system that's set up this way. But on the other hand, cities actually influence a lot of this. DAs influence a lot of this. Mayors influence a lot of this. So there is an opportunity to have more of an impact. So if you have if you want to go to the church, if you have evangelicals in one city and they're united in trying to make a difference on something like this, there's a better chance that they can affect something like this as opposed to, say, some kind of federal policy. So there, that's one maybe hopeful way to think about it. It's very helpful because there's an old adage in, in organizational psychology and in business world, uh, what gets measured is what gets done, right? So, so what you measure, what you incentivize shapes behavior. Um, so if I've got to write, you know, 50 tickets this month in order to meet my quota, I'm going to write those tickets. Um, but, it, but, but it's sinister, right? Because that kind of organizational culture um, gets married to sort of narratives about criminality, right? So you're not writing those tickets uh, in neighborhoods where there are a lot of soccer moms driving minivans who stay at home and da -da -da. you're not doing it there. Uh, you're going to write those tickets in communities where there's already a, a suspicion of criminality. There's already a narrative about criminality um, where uh, the presumption is going to be guilt uh, rather than innocence. Uh, 
and, and where people don't have resources to fight back, um, you know, material resources to fight back. And so, you know, black and brown poor communities get exploited in that way. And I, I love what you're saying there, Ben, because, you know, the levers of change are, are not really um, sort of in the streets marching, um, as important as that is. Uh, there are some easier to reach level levers of change. Uh, and that engagement in our city councils, our city politics, our city elections, uh, local government, uh, that's a place where uh, a lot of people could be influential uh, on behalf of justice. And uh, we started this, I think, in part, you know, people like, hey, we, you know, this is marching, is that a good thing? Da, da, da. It's like, well, listen, let's, let's settle the first issue. If you think an injustice has occurred, um, then, then I think that morally obligates you to act. You don't have to act vis-a-vis -vis marching and protesting. You could be, as you just said a moment ago, that cluster of people who go to the city council uh, and, and use whatever leverage you have at the city council um, to make sort of substantive policy and practice changes that, that actually make a difference. Yeah, I think, um, so I, I, I think I'll say one other thing though here, just in terms of my question about like, is it a problem? And I guess what I'd say here is what you also, I think can't ignore is just the subjective experience of millions of African-Americans in this country. Ask anyone, almost anyone, right? Like ask any black man, like um, ask, ask any black woman, right? Like in terms of what is your experience of policing and does it, and how does it feel vis-a-vis -vis the way that an equivalent white person would sort of think about um, policing? And what you described to me, you talked about like the systemic pieces there way, way before there's ever a confrontation or an encounter, right? It's sort of how do you, what is your relationship with the police like? Are your police an occupying army in your neighborhood? Um, or are they folks that are there to, to, uh, to protect and serve you? And what does that look like? And are they otherizing you? I think one of the things I think that is most horrifying about, for example, the George Floyd video is, you know, sort of, you see his face, you see the pain, you hear him, you hear him, at one point, you know, crying out for his mom, who, you know, had passed two years before, um, and just the, the nonchalance you see from both the arresting officer and the person standing next to him. Um, and you can't, you can't get there with that. There's something in the heart, um, you know, of a person, right, when it comes to um, like what you're, how you're able to see those that you, that you, you know, that you're supposed to be protecting and serving. And I think that there's, so, so there are aspects I think that I agree with you guys on as far as the incentives are concerned. Um, I think there's also something about what do we tell our sort of young men and women who go into policing about what their job is, right? Like, and how, how do we help them understand better what their job is? So without saying, oh, these are particularly evil people, I don't think that. Right, but it is about what culture they raised in, what are they sort of taught to do, um, and there are ten over ten thousand local police forces in the country. So how do you how do you facilitate that that sort of change of heart? I think that's a big part of the problem as well. Well, yeah, and and yeah, your your philosophy of policing is uh, a significant contributor to this. So if if you've adopted into the military paradigm. Um, you, you're going to get a certain kind of response and orientation toward 
communities. If, if you've adopted a community policing paradigm, uh, you get a really different set of relationships and responses. So if you look at um, uh, several communities, uh, cities across the country, where police chiefs came out, talked with protesters, marched with protesters, took a Colin Kaepernick style knee with mm. protesters, um, th th those events were really different in, in terms of their outcome uh, on things like police community relationships, on things like vandalism and, 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 and whatnot, they were really different in their outcome compared to those, um, those cities that took a, a more adversarial, militaristic, come out in riot gear approach, um, sprayed, pepper spray and all that good stuff. Um, it, it's, even we've also seen this weird phenomena, right? Um, sinful phenomena of certain groups sort of globbing onto the protest. They're not really protesters, they're there, um, whether it's Antifa or whether it's the far right or whatever, to do the things that they're doing, trying to spark um, chaos. Uh, it's harder even for those persons to do what they have come to do mm. when actually there's a cooperative relationship between police and community and where police police themselves and admit the truth um, and engage these issues uh, in ways that are cooperative, man. So yeah, there's just so many ways in which uh, the, the, the culture of policing is determinative of uh, relationship with people and, and whether or not those relationships are redemptive um, or whether or not they're adversarial. So we've, we've talked a little bit about the um, sort of the problem. We've talked about the kind of sorts of things in public policy that might matter for that problem. So the incentive structure set up for the criminal justice system um, and the culture of policing and the way that we think about training um, our officers. Um, and then of course, how we hold them accountable. Um, I think all those things, like those, those are the, those, that's the realm of public policy things we're, we're thinking about. Now, ostensibly, our protests here, right, are in the first instance about justice for George Floyd, and in the broader instance about uh, making some of those changes. And I think if you, you can go, a, you can go a step wider out there and say you can't know the motivations of every protester, and of course it can go, it can go even wider than that. What what do we think of what's been happening of the sort of protests in um, cities and even kind of how, how we should think about protest as a means of achieving change? Well, as a, as a means of achieving change, I mean, I think it's, it's quite clear that protest is, is often very effective in achieving change. And I think, um, yeah, I think it, it demonstrates one, a, a public will to to take this seriously and say enough is enough. I mean, I think we saw I mean, I think, yeah, it's 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 hard to talk about without, you know, a lot of people are invoking the name of Martin Luther King, so I do so tentatively, but there's no doubt that his his uh policy of nonviolent protest was very successful in highlighting injustice and changed this country for the better. Right? Like there's just there's no way around it. And you know, we forget, but he was a hated man. I mean, obviously we assassinated him, but they did polls on him and, and people hated him. Um, and he was still effective because of protest. Uh, now was disciplined, organized, nonviolent, um, all of those things that, that helped. Um, but he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't successful because he was a, a popular man. He was successful because he was an organized man who led protests again and again and again uh, until 
things started to change for the better. And so I, I think, yeah, I think there's a dismissiveness of, among some corners to be like, these protests don't matter, just vote. And it's like, no, 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 this stuff works. And, like, from a very crass perspective, it's going to get media coverage, it's going to get talked about, politicians have to respond to it. In a more hopeful way, it highlights injustice for the general public that, to be frank, somebody like me growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey probably has no idea about until they start to see some of those things on TV. Let me give you a counterpoint to that and just see yeah. what you both think about this. One thing I've heard, and I, I think I'm, I'm at least partly sympathetic to this, is um, I wonder, right, like I wonder and question like how effective our protests are today in the current age. And I don't mean the current ones, I mean in the past, the last 10 years. Think about actions, right? Like post Michael Brown, post, you know, any number of other things like that, there have been demonstrations. They have for the most part been peaceful. And yet the ones that got everyone's attention, right? I have no idea how it's gonna end, but the ones that got every, everyone's attention are the ones where property was destroyed, where, there's been violence, et cetera. And I think there are those who might say, I mean, you know, it's funny, you hear some of the kind of just recordings or videos from the ground on the protests where people are arguing, protests are arguing with each other, right? About like what, what to do. You know, we've been, you know, one on one side is kind of a, you gotta be peaceful. And on the other side is a, we've tried that and it didn't work essentially. So are you um, saying then, in order for protest to be effective, it must be destructive in some way? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm asking the. I'm. No. I'm. I'm asking the question. Right. I'm asking after ten years of kind of attempted mass action around each of these outrages. Right. Like there's a certain. I think there's a certain school of thought, and I'm ambiguous on my own thinking of it right now. Of it's no wonder they've turned violent because they've been nonviolent for years and nothing's changed. Well, no, man, there's, uh, yeah, there are many ways to think about that question. Um, so one effectiveness, um, I think, I think you cloud the reason for the protest when you add in an element of violence or destruction. Um, it become, it starts to become about, certain corners start to talk about law and order and not about um, the actual issues. So I think that can be a problem. Um, I think biblically, uh, I certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us is making a case that violence or destruction is a justifiable um, method of protest. So I think that would be the second way to think about it. Um, and third, I see no evidence that upping the ante on these protests and turning them into riots is going to bring more benefit to the people they're trying to help. I, I, maybe you have some studies that can convince no, me, but I have, no, I have no, never no, seen no, no. that help. It's, it's more like, it's more like I can see how it got here. Not that I'm sure that it, that, that what's happening now is going to end with any better of an outcome, but more like I can see how it got here. Oh yeah, it's understandable. Of course, it's understandable. There's, you've, uh, yeah. I mean, there's African Americans have been killed by the police again and again, and nothing seems to change. Yeah, it's absolutely understandable why somebody would want to put a brick through a window. The question is, is, is that the right thing to do? Is that the effective thing to do? Does that help? 
Uh, I think the answer is no. You might have an efficacy argument, but as Christians, I don't think that's something that's acceptable to us. But I, I defer. No, no, no. I'm sitting here frustrated because I, I just read this morning online, a guy has been doing work over the last dozen years or so on, on precisely this question. And he had a nice tweet thread um, on his research. Um, and and here's, here's what I remember of it. Gosh, I wish I could find it. Um, here's, here's what I remember of it. Uh, he basically makes the argument that uh, actually when the protests get violent, it generally does help the protests it, in one of two directions. Now, what I think is helpful um, for this conversation is that he, he goes through pains of distinguishing, uh, distinguishing the source of the violence, whether it comes from protesters or whether it comes from the police. Mm -hmm. and, and depending on where it comes from, it, it, the media frames it in a certain way. Uh, and that, that is helpful or, or not to sort of the objectives of, of the protest. So if, if the violence is, is perceived to be coming from the protesters, particularly um, if they set out to be kind of violent in that way, usually that then gets framed as a riot uh, and, and things along that kind of semantic range. Uh, attention's brought to it, but it's, it's, it's often sort of negative oppositional attention, right? But when the, when the, when the violence is, is uh, provoked or, or perpetrated by state actors, by law enforcement uh, and so on, it gets framed in terms of injustice. Um, and it gets framed in terms of mistreatment, which of course is what the argument has been um, all along for those who are, who are protesting these things. And this is why I think in part the civil rights movement was so powerfully compelling because you did have the marriage of, of, a, of a clear message um, sort of with, with moral argumentation and a methodology that was so plainly meant to be moral uh, and redemptive. So that when you saw folks being water hose and, and bitten by dogs and um, bloody Sunday on, on the Pettus Bridge, when you saw things like that, um, then, then the, the sort of light bulb goes off, this really is unjust this really is mistreatment. Uh, and to some extent, sort of moral favor is curried in that combination of things. But in either case, according to this research, you know, attention is brought to the issue um, and there is a kind of hearing, even if the hearing starts oppositional in that way. Now, that is not at all an endorsement for violence. That is not at all a call to go out uh, and to be violent. I, I think vandalism is wrong. I think those, um, those kinds of actors are, are illegitimate actors and they, they raise the question of legitimacy or illegitimacy for the movement itself. But, that it, but it is to say uh, very simply that what gets headlines is violence, not peaceful protest, right? What, what gets headlines and what furthers discussion uh, are these acts, whether from the, from the police departments or from the people walking the streets that, that sort of you know, become sort of, um, yeah, just heightened conflicts. Um, that gets people talking and getting people talking in some sense uh, is, is part of what's necessary. Yeah, no, that, I, I, I think that makes sense. I think that there's, um, if I think about the kind of, uh, the sort of ethic 
underpinning like kind of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, or at least one aspect of the ethic, obviously, as Christians, we think about uh, sort of the idea of, of, of witness, right? And of sort of saying, we're here, um, you know, this is how we're gonna show up. Um, and we are willing to put our own lives on the line to be, you know, kind of, it, to subject ourselves to, as in this, what, what in their case was often violence from the state, um, in order to kind of make the point we're making about injustice. And I think, um, I think if we translate that to sort of what's happening right now, um, it's just not as, well, it's not as, it's not as organized a movement as it was 50 years ago. And it's, I mean, even, even just what's arisen, right, has been more spontaneous. It's, um, it is um, more diverse in this case, right? There's kind of all comers at these protests, um, both racially and kind of even ideologically. Um, and I think that makes it hard for there to be sort of a single clear message. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I, 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 yeah. And it makes it difficult to have a, a single clear, compelling ethic from a, from a Christian perspective, right? So again, I, I just think we're, we're contrasting, if we're, if we're contrasting the, the classic civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s with what's happening today, I think it's really important to recognize that we're contrasting uh, a Christian movement in the 50s and 60s uh, against a largely secular movement today. Um, and uh, that creates other tensions too in terms of Christian involvement um, because the, the framing and the messaging um, very often will not be consistent with uh, a kind of Christian ethic of, of love and peace and reconciliation and so on. Um, and so that, that too begins, you know, that creates tension even for um, Christians themselves and our participation. Then you add to that um, the sort of, um, let's call it intra-family conflict uh, between Black and certain conservative white evangelical Christians uh, about whether or not there's a problem, about the means for addressing the problem, and so on. And it gets even more difficult as Christians to find a place um, together, at least, uh, in working on these issues. And so you, you, you get this kind of fatigue, you know, among all parties, um, and, and you get this, this abdication, right? So, so things like protests turning violent um, become sort of, in the minds of some people, justification for not, not doing anything. Well, you know, this is not legitimate anymore. That's not true. If you knew it was, uh, we were dealing with an unrighteous issue, an injustice, you know, beforehand, there's still an injustice there to be addressed. We just simply need to find different means uh, if we don't like this means or that means. Mm -hmm. um, and we live in a country where we got a wide range of possibilities for being able to take action in that way. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fraught time. Um, but it's a time for us to be, to double down on being distinctively Christian, um, and distinctively biblical and, and to wade in as Christ would have us to be, you know, Matthew what 5, 15. What, what should we be, what, so what does that mean? What should we be doing? So I mean, you've, I think you've laid it out well to me. You got sort of, um, an issue that we clearly care deeply about resolving. You've got a movement that's heterogeneous and not Christian, nor can we make it Christian. Right, but we want to we want to be productive, right? right. Um, and third, you've got a divided church, right? That doesn't all agree on how deep a problem this is. Yeah. So, on any or all of these three fronts, what can or should we do as Christians to be prophetic? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what 
what my current thinking is and, and you guys can correct me and all that good stuff. Um, on that third one of, of Christian unity, uh, it's really clear to me that that's not the primary issue right now. Right. Um, and so if folks don't want to walk with me, fine, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's on them. If they want to choose a different strategy, uh, fine. I think the most I can ask uh, at this point for folks who may not agree with the problem is at least don't get in the way. Stop being a distraction. Um, stop, stop being a source of conflict. And, uh, and then the other thing I would say for folks who are still maybe resonating with the issues and wanting to be helpful, I would say stop centering um, either yourself or stop centering Christian unity um, in this discussion, in this movement, because the folks who are being killed are not being killed because they're Christians, right? They're being, they're being killed um, and, and, and are disproportionately affected by police, police mistreatment because they're black. Um, and so there's, there's a sense in which um, we have to center that reality uh, in our analysis and in our strategy and in our action. And if you force black Christians to emphasize Christian unity um, instead of emphasizing the reality of, of police, police mistreatment toward black people, what you're going to find is a continuing number of black people making their ways out of uh, predominantly white spaces and inter-ethnic spaces, um, because that to remain in those spaces is a kind of suicide. You know, uh, it's it's a kind of self-destruction that um, I think we recognize at least at a at a, at a visceral level, um, and and sometimes we recognize that at a, at an articulate level. Um, so, I think on that third issue, I just would say, hey, listen. I believe in Christian unity. I believe the gospel reconciles. I believe Christ has made one new people. I do not believe that those things mean that therefore then we are all treated the same way in the wider secular society in the world. And so um, there's a sense in which I have to respond to the realities that I'm presented with, as we all do. Uh, and that will mean in, in instances like this, on situations like this, I've got to underline and underscore the realities that, that, that are faced um, by African Americans as an African American, and and the hope is that Hispanic brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters would understand that, and and themselves would stand out front uh, in solidarity with Black people as a people against these things, so that I then have the liberty to also lean into Christian unity, because I'm not at the same time neglecting the kinds of things that impact us um, in an ethnic way. So that that's that's my own thinking on that third issue, Nick. Um, let me, me start there because I want to hear about the other two issues, but I just want to push on this and just I, I'm I'm gonna actually just take a more slightly more aggressive stance here to say I think the silence of the church, like a gospel that has a ton to say about like a transgender bathroom bill and nothing to say about this, hmm. like is like is borderline heretical. And so I can't help but wonder if, if their problem is the unity problem, not ours. No, amen. That's a, that's a great way to put it. That's that's a great so, way to put it. Yeah. So yeah, and I and I just think that like that you you got to flip it on its head. Like unity means you stand with us, not the other way around. Yeah. And I'm I just it 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 is um I like every day I see kind of sort of tweets from the usual suspects on the trivia of other matters 
Yeah. Right. Like we're kind of we're kind of faffing around around like so-called religious liberty for Southern Baptists, not for everyone, for Southern Baptists or right. whatever it is. And we were ignoring this in front of our face. Like I feel as if like it's like it needs to be called out the same way like prosperity teaching is called out, right? Like it's that level of serious. That's good. And so anyway, I just, I just think that like that is something we have, we have more to say about kind of big evangelicalism later this season, right? We have other sort of things we're going to talk about, but like just a preview of kind of my own thinking on that. I just think it's really, really important. Well, that's, that's good because expressions of solidarity have been one directional. Um, and um, that, that needs to change. That's spot on, Nick. Yeah. Uh, what about what? So going back to numbers uh, one and two, then we were talking. We were saying there's a, there's a sort of not so Christian movement. How can we help it? And then there's a um, sort of question here around like, what do you do? Uh, like, sort of what's the Christian's duty? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of um, involvement in any particular strategy, there are always going to be issues of conscience involved. Um, so I, I just want to underline that uh, we've got to pay attention to our conscience, and we've got to be very char charitable in extending uh, Christian liberty to one another. So if I feel uh, settled in my conscience and able to go and say, march with a Black Lives Matters march, um, we don't need to then sort of get into a debate where I argue you must also, if, you, if your conscience won't allow you, or you argue that I must never, right? Um, so we don't wanna bind each other um, to our personal consciences, but bind each other to the word of God. And we want to give a lot of sort of Christian charity here. Um, which means then, I think that we're free to be operating on a lot of different levels, um, depending on how the Lord has wired us and, and the opportunities that he's given us, right? Um, so in, in our own local church, right, we've got people who are working inside the DOJ, we've got people who are working in city government, uh, we've got uh, an elected um, sort of local government ANC representative. Um, so, so we've got folks in different lanes, right? With different levels of authority uh, and accountability to community and, and they should be running in those lanes. And then we've got um, people who are, who are like, feel like foot soldiers who want to be marching and, and we wanna pray for them and encourage them and equip them to do that and stand beside them when they pay a cost. So we got a 16 year old young girl who was uh, two days ago, uh, marching in one of the marches um, downtown peacefully and um, found herself pepper sprayed and hospitalized, um, you know, through no fault of her own, but but exer exercising her right. And uh, a day or two later, she's like, I'm ready to be back out there. And so we've got folks who, who say, this is the contribution that I can make. And um, we want to be able to equip them and encourage them to be able to do that. So I, I want to argue, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, and get in where you fit in and um, try and bring sort of positive change as the Lord, as the Lord gives you opportunity. And, and we just go back real quickly to underscore all that Ben said earlier in this conversation about the, the much of the game is really at the local level that, that we should not, as we sometimes do, so emphasize the national um, that we forget the local. Uh, because in point of fact, George Floyd was killed by a local police officer. Now that's blown up to become national news, but it's actually something that was happening on the ground in a local city and community. Uh, and that's where we need to be active the most, I think. Yeah, I think the answer to the question of what like the Christian should do, I, I 
agree with all of that. I think the only addendum I would make there as as the you know the white evangelical here, I think um, I look at it similar but different. I think in the sense of I wanna I wanna start with me. So like one, I'm gonna pray, and I mm-hmm. think. I think something that's happened in this is is the the emotional aspect, the cascading effect. It's it's and my sin is my sin, but it's robbed me of prayer over the past like four days, mm. um, and that ought not be. Um, there is one king who can set things right, and it ain't me, and it ain't Mayor Bowser. Mm. And it's definitely not Donald Trump. Uh, and so I think I want to start hor- I want to start vertically with with my God and say, A, lament and B, fix this, please. Um, and then B, again, thinking of consen- like concentric circles radiating out, I want to examine my own life as like, okay, I- I'm a white dude, pretty privileged, where have I missed the boat? And I know, like, I don't want to do the whole, like, self-flagellation, white guilt thing. That can be overdone, I think. Um, and it can be, make things about me instead of George Floyd or injustice, which is not the point. But as a Christian, I want to, I want to confess or examine, repent my own heart attitudes and say, okay, I need to, I need to think about these things. Uh, and then it radiates out to my family. Like, am I raising my children in such a way that they are going to see that their um, black and brown brothers and sisters are made in the image of God, inherently valuable, and to recognize that and see it? And then I'm going to start to pray for my church. I'm going to start to engage my church members. Are there African-American members in my church who are hurting? Can I love them in some tangible way, even if it's just simply to text them and say, I'm sorry. I love you. Um, and, and it keeps radiating, radiating out. Okay. Outside of my church. Okay. What can I do in my city? Can I march? Should I march? Can I write a letter to my mayor, to my council member? Um, can I ask some questions, um, in a responsible way? Uh, and then finally radiating out even further. It's like, how am I going to steer my vote nationally uh, in this way? And so that's kind of the loose grid I've been looking at. Um, yeah, I think it's really easy to stuff prayer and be like, this needs to stop. We need to do something. Um, but I think King David is instructive before major engagements. He would consult with the Lord and say, should I go up? And the Lord would say yes or no. And when he didn't, things went much worse. So I, I just want to, before anything, I want to take it to him. And I think that's been my what I've been convicted of over the past couple of days, because it's just really easy to be like, I got to do, we got to do something. This has got to stop. Um, but we are weak and frail. So that was my takeaway. I think, um, so I, I, I think I definitely agree on the need for prayer. And I think the thing that's flummoxing me, me the most is actually not quite knowing what a good ending would look like in this particular instance, right? So for example, I would tell you on the one hand, like as a DC resident where the protests are near 
me and I live in a neighborhood that was destroyed by riots 50 years ago, yeah. I would say, gosh, it would be good. It would be good if there were less violence. It would be good, right? If you know, the city weren't that damaged by this. On the other hand, I'm not, I'm not jazzed about the outcome of like, they just, the protests just kind of die out because they lose steam, which happens often with protests, right? Um, and yet it's hard for me to imagine who leads to resolve, right? Like whether or how like this president could do it, right? Whether or how any given single city's mayor could do it or a governor could do it. I think it's hard for me to see how that ends and is better. So I think those are great situations for prayer, right? Because it's God and your wisdom resolve this in a way that leads to justice. I think in a way that, um, that is beyond my own comprehension as to how it will end well. I think that's kind of one thing I've been thinking about a lot. I think you're right, Ben, about then sort of personal action and, and the beauty is just kind of show up. I have to think about when and whether it's a good idea for, you know, for us and our family to show up. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe during the daytime editions of these protests, right? Like that might be a good uh, time to think about it. Um, one thing I've been wondering about um, is at some point during the right hours of the day, like just taking my two boys out for a drive to the areas of the city that are affected and kind of use this as a moment to teach them, my seven-year-old, my two-year-old, sort of what happened and why and what's going on and why it's challenging and complicated. Um, and to just begin to sort of help my own family understand um, these things. Um, but I, and then, yeah. No, Nick, that's huge. The, the, the family conversations we have is hu are huge. Uh, my wife was making this point online yesterday that uh, honestly, you know, if I think about white brothers and sisters who say, hey, how, how can I help? Well, one way you can help is to make sure that uh, the kinds of things that have gotten passed along generationally, from indifference to antipathy, right? Uh, that those things don't just keep getting passed along uh, generationally, that we have some conversations about what we have inherited, um, you know, in the way of thinking and, and attitudes and things of that sort. Uh, and what if that is good and what if that is bad? What should be passed on and what should we be working to sort of stamp out, you know, in, in this generation? Um, so that, that, that work at the kitchen table, that work, you know, at the bedside, it's time for prayer, um, that work driving around the neighborhood is massively important uh, for the kind of cultural change that we would, we would hope to see. That, that's just really important. I'm glad you said that, brother. And I think the world will tell you that it's not. Mm-hmm. I think the world would say prayer doesn't matter. Your family is barely anything. And what's, what's teaching your kids something going to do? Like, yeah. they're, they're not going to value those things. So I think there is something uniquely Christian about the emphasis there. Um, so, yeah, I'm encouraged by it. Yeah, definitely. And then I think the last thing is think about the agenda that you to be laid out, right? I don't, now is not the time, right? You're not, you're not going to see a big bill proposed in Congress well, you've got Justin Amash's bill, right? Mm -hmm. But but the point is that like at some point this will shift into policymakers and leaders proposing what they're gonna do about it, right? Yeah. And Amash is kind of the early thing, but starting to keeping track of those, yeah. educating yourself about mm -hmm. those saying where are you gonna support and what are you gonna support? Well, I think that's right. And and I think it's it's again another one of those things that is a pretty remarkable contrast between the cl classic civil rights movement uh, and this movement. The classic civil rights movement, you had something that uh, was pretty sort of recognizable as the objective for people, you know, voting rights, for example. 
the, the current movement isn't as concrete uh, in terms of having a shared sort of goal. This is what we're pushing for. This is what it would look like in the way of legislation or, you know, and so on. Um, I think going forward, that's got to be fixed or, or the protests will always be reactionary. Um, and, and the time between protests, the time between incidents will always be characterized by a kind of apathy or inaction um, by, by most people. And, and so we've, we've got to have some concrete sort of deliverables that are framing what we're pushing for or it'll be aimless and um, that'll, that'll be a, another missed opportunity. Definitely, definitely. I, I, I believe uh, one Barack Obama made that point um, in the, over the course of the last few days. That was just basically the question being like, get concrete. And so actually, I think for us personally, it's about how do we support that concreteness as it emerges, right? To say, oh, Justin Amash's bill on qualified immunity, like that's the thing we want. Or is there some, or is it something else, right? What's the thing that's going to be most meaningful? Like, so for example, there's a very immediate, like in Minneapolis, that officer has been charged right? There's a prosecution that's going to take place. Okay, good. That clearly wasn't enough. So what else concretely is needed, right? And so I think that's something for us to be watchful about and be positive contributors to the dialogue about here's what we could be asking for, as it were. I agree. Amen. Because the justice of the cause is, is evident. It's as evident as people marching in New Zealand and Japan and Berlin, all over the world, right? Um, this is this is the other thing that can frustrate me if I'm not careful about some Christians who pretend like you know it's not evident. It's as evident as far away as New Zealand, um, and uh, so the the rightness of the cause is is clear. But we also got to get clear on the sort of objectives uh, that we're aiming for. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and take our own advice and uh, pray. We should have pray. been pray for us. All right, sounds good. Happy to. Heavenly Father, we do praise you as a good and just God. And we long for the day when Christ will return and perfect justice will reign. Um, in the meantime, Lord, we are confronted with a world that is incredibly broken and incredibly unjust in many ways. And so we, we are saddened by that, Lord. We are saddened by the death of George Floyd. And we pray that you would bring justice. And we pray that you would bring comfort to his family. We pray that the killing of unarmed and innocent black men by police officers could cease, Lord. We pray that this country would be a place that starts to see each other made in the image of God, made in the image of you. That brings inherent dignity and in that even one, one death would be unacceptable to us and that we would fight hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. But all of this is in your hands, Lord. And so we pray that you would orchestrate things in such a way that um, America would be a more just place. Um, that is what we long for. We confess that we don't understand sometimes why these things are allowed to happen. We confess that it can be frustrating and infuriating, Lord. But we trust you. You're a good God. You promised to be with us and uphold us. And so we ask that you do that now and bring grace and mercy um, to this land and bring people to the knowledge that they are lost without your help, without your interference, without you coming to save us, Lord. So 
we pray that you would bring us to repentance, open eyes, and bring bring people to Jesus. We pray all that in his name. Amen. Amen.